What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, mythology podcast, and how those subjects bubble into our popular storytelling and popular culture. As always, I am very, very excited to be back here with another Midnight Myth episode. We're midsummer 2020. Things are weird. Things are COVID 19. I hope everyone's safe and staying sane. Um, Some people are just ignoring quarantine procedures. Some people are following them. The whole world seems like it's going to hell. And I'll tell you what I need to do. I need to think a little more optimistically about the future. And no better way to do that than to discuss more science fiction. This is our third in our five-parter on science fiction in America. Now, you know, science fiction writ large, but generally speaking, American science fiction. And this is a big one. This is a huge one. This is considered by some to be one of, if not the greatest science fiction movies of all time. And it's part of a monumental, amazing, complex, cinematic, television, literature, game, universe, culture, subculture, you name it. We are going where no Midnight Myth podcast has gone before. We are talking Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, our very first time taking on the Star Trek uh, franchise. So it is a little intimidating and we should preface with the fact that we are uh, not deeply uh, invested Star Trek fans. We are not like super experts on the lore, but we are casual admirers of the, of the franchise. Uh, we are people who love the work, love what it stands for, and find so much value in the Star Trek movies and the television series. Uh, so this is going to be an exciting deep dive for us, especially because this is considered the pinnacle of Star Trek movies. Um, and Honestly, it it is such a joy to watch it today. And like you said, it has this uh, optimism and this sense of hope that it uh, lands on that makes us feel a little bit better in these really, really strange times when the future looks often very bleak. This offers us a view of a future that looks really, really, really good uh, and looks like we can get through the things that we're dealing with and the, the trauma and the pain and the... Uh, the conflict and the things that we are still wrestling with every single day, those things can be overcome according to Star Trek. So very excited to take it on. Yeah, the way I describe my relationship and fandom of Star Trek is that I am a Star Trek fan. I have seen every Star Trek movie. I've watched a lot of the Star Trek TV shows. In particular, I've seen the entire original series and Next Generation Next Generation was kind of like my Star Trek that uh, show that I watched, but I am not a Trekkie, which is interesting because many years ago, I thought I kind of was a Trekkie, and then I met some Trekkies, and I realized, and I'm like, okay, there's a level of fandom there that I haven't even scratched the surface of. I just really like Star Trek. I am a casual fan, and uh, I have nothing but love and respect for the property I think being a Trekkie is awesome. I just happen to not be one. There's nothing wrong with being a Trekkie in any way, shape, or form. Because sometimes pop culture, 
likes to use Trekkies as the butt of jokes as like the example of the er, like nerd oddball. And I'm always like, so what's wrong with being a nerd and what's wrong with being an oddball? You know, like, yeah. What's wrong with loving something? Honestly. Yeah. So so much that you want to dress up like it. You'll sign me up. Absolutely. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I have so much respect for it. But the reason I say this now is going into talking this to about this movie is I am legitimately nervous that I'll get something wrong And I hope the Trekkies among you that are listening view that with some indulgence. And if I got something wrong, you know, please let me know so we can correct it. And there's because there's so much to Star Trek and there's so many ways that you can analyze it. But you're listening to the Midnight Myth and we have one way that we analyze everything. And I'm not saying that's the only or the best way. It's just our way. And that's to understand history, mythology and philosophy through popular storytelling to which Wrath of Khan is bursting out of the seams, the things that we can talk about here from the Midnight Myth Lens. Absolutely. And just here at the beginning, I want to just piggyback on the things you're saying about the um, about Trekkies and about the fandom here. Uh, just the debt of gratitude that I think contemporary nerd culture owes to Star Trek and to the people who love Star Trek cannot be... Uh, overstated. So um, I I just want to throw a little bit of gratitude on the fact that this franchise was able to stir so much love and devotion in people that it has created some really phenomenal things. And yeah, there are also some toxic things about fandoms across the world, but I think there are also some really powerful things. I think stories bring us together, and I think genre stories in particular, which are a huge part of our focus, sci-fi, fantasy, horror, uh, things outside of the realm of what's usually considered serious text, uh, those things can bring people together and open people up in ways you could never possibly imagine. So I just want to throw a little bit of that gratitude on what Star Trek has done for genre and for nerds. And Star Trek is the greatest sci-fi series pop culture phenomenon known to me. There is none greater. There is none more prolific. There is none more game-changing. There is none more revolutionary when it came out. And it has its ups and flows, its ups and downs. It's been around for a long time with many different creative teams, many different writers, directors, producers, actors involved in it. And to me, in my humble opinion, and I defer to the Trekkies out there, Star Trek to Wrath of Khan is the greatest thing to come out of Star Trek. Yeah, I agree. In my opinion. And I say this loving the original TV show Next Generation. I say this knowing that for that till the day I die, I will always laugh in the voyage home when Spock says, well, double dumbass on you. (laughs) One of the greatest written comic lines in all science fiction history But still, to me, it always comes back to Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Absolutely. And um, all right, so we have a lot to get through. Good introduction. Before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so if you want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you, and we're always around. The best place to reach us is on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth, or you can hit us up on Facebook or Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, midnightmyth.com, drop us a line on the contact form there, or sign up for our email list. Also on that website, you're going to find blogs and extra content. Uh, You will also find a link to our merch store if you are desperate for a Midnight Myth t-shirt to wear around the house as you're quarantining, or uh, a onesie for your baby, or a mug for your coffee, whatever, we've got it for you. Uh, And then also on the website on midnightmyth.com, you'll find a link to our Patreon page. Patreon is a platform where you can support us for a low monthly donation in exchange for perks like discounts on merch, a shout out on the podcast, or bonus episodes if you contribute at the $5 a month level. Uh, So we would love to have you in that community. We're so grateful for our patrons, uh, and we would love to share some extra fun bonus episodes with you. Um, Other than that... Uh, The best thing that you can do for the podcast is absolutely free. Takes five minutes of your time. Head over to your favorite podcast listening app, especially Apple Podcasts, and drop us a five-star rating or a review. It really, really helps us get out there, and it's really cool to get that feedback from our fans. Uh, So that is it from me. 
All right, let's do our briefest of brief recaps. Yeah. Star Trek II Wrath of Khan opens up with a bunch of cadets failing a flight simulator test called the Kobayashi Maru. We are then introduced to see all of our heroes from traditional Star Trek, including an aged Admiral Kirk on his birthday, suffering from a little old guy blues, regretting the fact that he is now an admiral and his job is no longer to pilot and captain a starship. He is with all of the other heroes, such as Scotty, Spock, Chekhov, Ahura, you name it, training a new generation of cadets whose job it is to take over the starship Enterprise. They get to the ship for a little training cruise when they get a distress signal. The distress signal is coming from a science station run by Carol Marcus, an ex-lover of James T. Kirk, who has been taken over by the vicious, mean, and cruel Khan. The USS Reliant was in partnership with Carol Marcus and a thing called Project Genesis. Project Genesis is a way to reorganize the compensational and structural matrix of a dead planet so that it is a planet that can sustain life. However, it could also be used as a global killing weapon, as if there is any life on the planet when Genesis is unleashed, it would be destroyed and killed in favor for the new life forms. While the USS Reliant is searching a planet they believe to be uh, SETI Alpha 6. Yeah, they believe it's SETI Alpha 6. They believe to be SETI Alpha 6. They believe to be a dead planet. They stumble on an old nemesis from the original Star Trek series by the name of Khan. Khan has been stranded on a planet which was actually SETI Alpha 5, struggling to survive, wishing and dreaming up his revenge on now Admiral Kirk. Khan seizes the Reliant, then seizes Project Genesis, um, tries to seize Project Genesis, kills most of the scientists, and then sends a fake distress signal to Kirk, in which Kirk then comes in the Enterprise trying to aid the scientists, finding Khan has ambushed him and crippled his ship. In this, we learn that Carol Marcus has a son named David, who is actually James Kirk's son, and James Kirk was asked by Marcus to spend his entire life away, never knowing his son, for fear that his son might turn out like him, a captain skipping around the universe and not a good scientist. Long story short, it ends up with a very slow, very suspenseful, naval-esque battle within a nebula in which Kirk finally gets the better of the two-dimensional vengeance-seeking Khan, even though Khan is clearly the more intelligent of the two. Khan, though, has one less game up his sleeve as he tries to trigger Project Genesis, knowing that the Enterprise doesn't have warp capabilities, which would kill him, his ship, as well as Kirk and Kirk's ship. This is when Spock makes the most noble sacrifice, one of the most noble sacrifices of all of cinematic history, his solution to the Kobayashi Maru, I'm tearing up just saying it, is when he goes into a radiation-flooded chamber and puts the warp drive back online so the Enterprise can escape and Spock dies. His soul was the most human. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. One of the final lines spoken by Spock, one of his key catchphrases, one of the Vulcan maxims that he lives by, along with live long and prosper. These are some of the last words that he speaks to uh, his now and forever friend, James T. Kirk. Uh, An incredibly tragic ending, and then they jettison him off into space, where he lands on the new planet that Genesis has created out of the nebula, and Kirk looks at it and says, I feel young. Um, Wonderful recap. I just thought I would throw those details in there at the end, because I think they're so um, significant to the the themes of the story, uh, which deals in meditations on mortality, on age, on growing old, uh, on rejuvenation, and on creation and destruction being so much a part of each other. Uh, Such a strong story. Really, really is just incredibly well-written. And also a story that is absolutely a cautionary tale about vengeance consuming your heart. And both the hero in Kirk and the antagonist in Khan, their hearts have been consumed by something. With Kirk, it's regret. It is regret. I am now old. I have made bad decisions. I'm now in a position where I'm not happy. 
and a position that reminds me that I am old. And with Khan, it is vengeance and his seeking of vengeance at all costs, no matter what. And both of these characters, um, Khan never learns to grow beyond just seeking his vengeance, where Kirk has to learn to live without regret and live in a world where he can feel young despite the fact he is not, where he can see life being reborn from death, where it's not just destruction, it is also creation, and he can be content knowing he has lost his best friend. Yeah, truly a a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, I mean, I think this movie absolutely holds up incredibly well. It still looks great. Some of the digital effects compared to today don't age particularly well, but it's not like they look bad. Yeah, I was expecting to go in and see like a ton of camp and to be really um, cringy about the effects, but I did not feel that way. I thought the practical effects were really excellent. Uh, the ships looked incredible. Uh, the puppetry of those indigenous eels on SETI Alpha 5 I thought was really uh, terrifying and pretty realistic. So like, there's, there's a lot, I think, to love about the visual effects in this movie that still hold up. But for me, the, uh, the great strength of this film is its script. Uh, it really is tight. It is, um, it's intellectual. It is, uh, to its core, a character study. Uh, and it, it does that through the lens of this beloved sci-fi series. And I'd add on top of that, the acting is phenomenal. Yeah. It, absolutely yeah, phenomenal. I mean, you're getting- the con performance is one of the performances of performances for cinematic villains. Ricardo Montalban. Yeah, he is outrageously good. You're getting classic Shatner as Kirk, but like you've grown to love it. Like how can you not love it when he screams into his uh, communications device, Khan, like it's just an iconic moment. Uh, And yes, he is prone to a little bit of overacting, but uh, he's earned it, I think, as Kirk in this story. Yeah, totally. 100%. And obviously, Leonard Nimoy as Spock is always going to charm my heart. Oh, my God. Beloved. Yeah, absolutely. And all of the main original cast, every single one of them, every second that they're on screen, I feel like we're seeing them at the height of their acting prowess. I think they've really come to know these characters incredibly well. And armed with a good script that knows these characters, I think they're all able to shine through, whether it's Scotty mourning that one young midshipman who didn't abandon his post in the attack. Um, you know, and all of these things, whether it's Chekhov going yeah. SS Botany Bay. Chekhov fighting against the mind control in order to preserve the, the life of his captain. Like These performances are iconic and they have come to define these characters both backwards and forwards. So one of my introductory points to Star Trek was this movie, was watching this movie and then going backwards, looking at the series as a whole and seeing William Shatner dashing and overacting. I'm like, of course, that's what he does. I saw it in Wrath of Khan. And then going forward, these performances are etched in our cultural mind in large part because of this movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, The Wrath of Khan, for me, I'd love to kind of kick off our analysis by talking about a few of the influences on the Wrath of Khan. And to start that, I'll say uh, this is less of a, like, hard sci-fi story and more of a Shakespearean drama in space. Uh, I think this is uh, deeply concerned with many of the themes of classical literature. uh, And it is, in many spaces, directly... Uh, referencing classical literature. So I'd love to talk about a couple of those, if you'll allow it. I absolutely would, and but it's not up to me. It's your <laughs> podcast too. But yes, go for That's it. That's true. Will you allow me this? Um, so one of the most important literary references in The Wrath of Khan is the one that is quoted verbatim multiple times by Khan himself, and that is Herman Melville's Moby Dick, considered one of the great American novels which is basically about this guy, Ahab, who is possessed and obsessed by getting revenge against a white whale who took his leg. And he pretty much makes his ship go down with him in the single-minded pursuit of this white whale. 
It's a massive, massive book. There are chapters just on the taxonomy of whales. There are meditations on race and colonialism. It is so, so, so big uh, that I could barely even get close to summarizing the like deep uh, sea that it's really about. But at its core, that's the plot. You've got a single-minded, obsessive madman who is going after a white whale for revenge. Khan is Ahab. He's going after his white whale, the Enterprise, James T. Kirk. There are even several moments where Khan quotes Moby Dick and quotes Ahab directly verbatim. Uh, For instance, his final speech as he is dying and pulling his last gambit, uh, he says, uh, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. These are direct quotes from the end of Moby Dick as Ahab is following the white whale with a spear and disappearing into the ocean with it. You know, it's interesting. When let, Let's talk a little bit about the character Khan as it relates to Moby Dick, too, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Because what is Khan the character in the literal sense? He was built in the 20th century, genetically modified to be a super warrior, super soldier. His brain is more efficient. His body is more efficient. He's stronger. He's smarter. He's better. And he was ultimately frozen and left in a ship and floated out until the Enterprise discovered the ship and thawed him, in which he tried to take over the ship and got marooned on SETI Alpha 5. That was um, the last we saw of him, but that's his quote-unquote origin story. If we accept that he is super intelligent, if we accept his narrative about himself, that he is the superior intellect, the superior et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if he's clearly read Moby Dick because, A, we see the book in his, um, you know, not home, I don't want to say, in his, his shelter. Camp, yeah. yeah, in his shelter. And we see him quote it. But yet he seems to not understand the lesson of Moby Dick and the lesson of most revenge narratives, whether that's, um, you know, Moby Dick or the Count of Monte Crisco or the Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The idea that consuming your heart being consumed with vengeance often leads to your own demise, even if it does mean the demise of the person or whale you're trying to destroy as well. And it's just simply not worth it to seek vengeance. So this leads me to a question of what is revenge? Why does it exist as a concept How old is the concept of revenge? Does it actually have any redeeming qualities to it? Or is vengeance itself, like Khan, just going to lead to your own destruction at all times? So the concept of revenge is as ancient as civilization itself. Somebody harms you and you want to get vengeance. Our desire for vengeance when we're being harmed is the reason, one of the reasons ancient civilizations created laws, codes, and courts to parcel out these disputes because vengeance would often go too far and the person that said that they were getting revenge often hurt the other individual much worse than they were hurt. This is why we have Hammurabi's Law Code. This is part of the sociological reason that we have Mosaic Law. If you're Jewish or Christian, you may believe God gave it to them. But if you're a sociologist, you're like, hey, these rules need to be here to kind of contain this group of people so they know how to act accordingly and more civilized towards each other. Generally speaking, psychologists argue that vengeance and those who are consumed with it are actually doing psychological damage to themselves. And that those who actually secure their revenge often come to regret it or they often come to feel empty and hollow inside. A great example of this in American history is the life of Aaron Burr after he killed Alexander Hamilton, in which he was disgraced, he was lonely, he was outcast, and he eventually died somewhere with his daughter in In the Ohio Valley in obscurity, failing to even become a farmer. And... You would think the character Khan, being the superior, would know this. You can't read Moby Dick and think, you know who was right? That Captain Ahab dude. Right, right. He did good, man. Well done, Captain Ahab. 
And yet here we have him quoting the book that is about vengeance destroying a person. Destroying a, an entire group of people. There is one person left standing at the end of that story, and it's Ishmael who happens to float away. Everybody else is destroyed. All of Khan's people die. Yeah. A hundred percent of them die in pursuit of his vengeance. He says he cares about his people and he does want to do right by them. Why doesn't Khan, the character, get it? I mean, that's an incredible question. You know, someone as well-read and intelligent as him should be able to make these sort of rational distinctions. But Star Trek has always been interested in the dichotomy between our reason and our passion, right? So we have the dichotomy of Kirk and Spock for a reason, because Kirk is driven by passion and Spock is driven by reason. The Vulcans are a logical society. Uh, and so there has always been this push and pull uh, in the Star Trek universe of like, how do we control our inner passions and use our logic? Or how do we sometimes override our logic with our feeling, which is occasionally more important? So I think that's why uh, Khan seems to be missing the point of the literature. And the literature is vast on revenge. Like you said, Count of Monte Cristo is another great example of a revenge story where it does not work out, but you can see why the character goes through the journey that he does because he's driven by passion, because logic is so overridden when we are driven by revenge. You said Khan loses all of his people. He loses his second in command, Joachim, who is the corollary of Starbuck in uh, Moby Dick, who is the voice of reason saying, Ahab, you know, stop going after this whale and like actually try and treat your crew nicely. Joachim is like, Khan, quit while you're ahead. We're good. Uh, and ends up becoming a casualty of war. And that loss even though it's a direct result of Khan's single-minded search for revenge, makes him double down. The last thing he says after uh, Joachim dies is, I will avenge you. So he is just driven more uh, lustful for this revenge because of that loss. So there's this kind of never-ending cycle uh, that is playing on the sort of psychological uh, disturbances that happen when you are wrapped up in that kind of passionate anger and, you know, Khan is a victim of injustice. Like, I'm not super familiar with the, um, the 60s episode that this is based on. I've seen it, but it's been a really, really long time. And he almost certainly deserved exile, but he's been really, really brutally held down. You know, he lost his wife. He's spent 15 years on a dead planet. That's going to make you crazy, and that's going to make you stew with anger at the person who's responsible for it. So I can understand absolutely why he's not taking the point from the literature. And it feeds into Kirk and his regret. Because in the original episode, Kirk promises to return to the planet to check on them, to see how they're doing. And he just doesn't. He completely puts Khan out of his mind and forgets about him and moves on. And if Kirk had done it, had returned, and seen that the planet had turned into, by no one's fault, a planet exploded, it changed the alignment of SETI Alpha 5, and it went from a lush and planet teeming with life to a desert-destroyed dead planet. If he had, he could have saved them and brought them to another planet. But Kirk didn't. Kirk put Khan somewhere and forgot about him marooned on a dying planet. That's what Kirk did. Because Kirk put him out of his mind, very much the way Kirk has put David 100% out of his mind and just moved on his own son. He has forgotten and stayed away and lived as if never existed. These things can't stay buried. They will eventually resurface. The Khan will ultimately get a ship and come back to haunt you. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head to me in the idea that what makes the Enterprise a successful StarCraft that's able to overcome all of these obstacles in all of these movies, and it is about the harmonious balance between intellect and passion, regulations that should be followed, rules that should be broken, Kirk, who reprogrammed the, the Kobayashi Maru computer, is also using Star Trek regulations to talk in code to Spock. 
to trick Khan in thinking the ship is more damaged than it is. So they know when to follow strictly the Star Trek regulations, and Kirk knows when it's time to actually throw them out. Because the entire team is balanced, it has a diverse and talented group of space explorers who have an equal say in what happens and how the spaceship should work. Kirk is not a tyrant. He can't Captain Ahab his ship even if he wanted to because Spock would remove him from command. He can't become so single-minded that he'd lead the entire crew to destruction because Spock would stop him. And even as such, he would listen to Spock. He would listen to Bones. He and would yeah, listen he would, to Sulu. Yeah. They, and they'd be like, he trusts his advisors. If Scotty says, we don't have the power, Kirk isn't like, do it or I kill you. Yeah. He's like, okay, when will we have the power? Tell me what we can do. He's never ruling this like a ty- like a tyrannical, um, you know, commander versus Khan, who, though he does care about his people, is clearly cares about his own pain more and clearly is self and ego motivated in everything that he does. And to Khan, there's no rest. There's no there's no break. There is nothing but getting his vengeance and that single-mindedness that we see within Khan and his obsession, his ego-driven obsession, yes, it's rooted in trauma, and yes, it's rooted in the actual pain, and yes, he has an axe to grind against James T. Kirk, 100% true, but he is so obsessed with it, he ends up destroying anything and everything he could have ever cared about in pursuit of it. Yeah, Um, I think there's some value to, uh, since we've been talking about the relationship to Moby Dick and the theme of revenge, I think there is some value in looking at uh, the sort of constellation of classical literary characters that make up Ahab and therefore Khan, uh, because they have other reverberations on the story other than this character study. Uh, So Ahab is often considered an Old Testament-style figure. He's angry, he's vengeful, uh, he has this single-minded pursuit Uh, he is a a patriarch and he is a great orator. Uh, But the the single most profound influence on Herman Melville in writing Moby Dick is William Shakespeare. And you'll remember at the top of this, I said, this is a Shakespearean drama in space. So Melville is clearly particularly influenced by the tragedies, specifically King Lear and Macbeth, uh, in crafting Ahab and crafting the tragic downfall of the character. Uh, But I also think there are tons of references within Moby Dick to even the comedies, like As You Like It. There's a reworking of the Seven Ages of Man speech, which I think will be very important uh, in discussing um, Wrath of Khan as well. So I'll come back to that in a second. Another of the great influences on Herman Melville is Paradise Lost by John Milton. So another of these Renaissance English writers who is influencing this uh, great American novelist. Paradise Lost is about Lucifer, Satan, being cast out of heaven and plotting his revenge against God, plotting to uh, expose the hypocrisies of God by rallying a revolution against him, very much something that we can see in Khan. He doesn't want to just kill Kirk, right? He wants to hurt him. He wants to do the same thing that Kirk did to him, maroon him on a desert planet, embarrass him in front of the next generation of people, uh, show that he is just as inferior as he had seen Khan to be in the past. So there's this huge tapestry of similar characters throughout classical literature that's making up Ahab, and it's therefore making up Khan. And the coolest thing about all of these characters is that these texts are all on Khan's bookshelf. He has two copies of Paradise Lost. He has the King James Bible, um, which also will be important when we talk about Project Genesis. And he has King Lear. So these are all super important texts to the character that also have tons of other implications on the story. I would say that Kirk actually identifies strongly with the King Lear energy because King Lear is about an aging king who is facing the uh, terrible fear of splitting up his kingdom and passing it on to the next generation, uh, and who is 
worried that he's losing his mind and does kind of lose his mind because he is getting old. While King Lear is a tragedy and Kirk has, you know, this way of, of rejuvenating in the end, he is feeling like a King Lear passing off to the next generation and dying in obscurity. So I think that absolutely uh, is an aspect of both characters. You kind of just blew my mind a little bit there. There was a lot going on. That was amazing. Well, and that's all, it's all in Wrath of Khan. Like, it's all there. So not only do we see the text in the actual shelter, the themes all relate back to the main themes of those texts, which is really fantastic. You know, and this reminds me of a, like a core thing I learned in studying history that I'd like to impart. And it's go back to the original texts. If you want to learn about a thing, going back to the original is really the way to do it. So if something has inspired you about Wrath of Khan and something has really like, you know, it's gotten your imagination going, going back to the source, the things that inspired it, such as Milton, such as Moby Dick, the Holy Bible, these original cortex that drive the narrative through this story, um, if you haven't picked those up in a while, or maybe you did it in school, or maybe it was on your to-do list and you never went through and did it, there's nothing like going back to the primary sources, as what a historian would say. Yeah. The original uh, text that started it all, and starting from there, in particular when you already love something, and the intellectual rewards for that, though they will be challenging and difficult and often frustrating, the rewards, the, the intellectual fruits that you will bear from doing this cultivation of your imagination and your intellect are boundless. Yeah, and it's cool when a movie hands it to you, right? It's cool when a movie has this incredible story and gets you on board because of these characters that you already love and then pans across a bookshelf and is like, if you like this, you'll also like... Like, it's a, it's a perfect uh, kind of setup for you to experience classical literature in a way that you can relate it to something you already love. And part of the Midnight Myth Project is to look for similarities. And human storytelling is an integrated affair throughout the ages. It was never done by just a person. There's no originator. We give birth to it as humans and we have shaped it and it has been developed. And there have been some fantastic voices throughout the ages who have ushered things along or brought in new developments. But at the end of the day, the similarities of the narratives that we see, the inspirations for them, the reason that vengeance has left us all like a, a cold dish in space, as the Klingons might say to paraphrase the movie, the reason that happens is because we're all participating and sharing in this together. So going back to the original text is such such a, a to me, is incredibly valuable. And it's awesome that this movie is able to do it both unsubtly and subtly. It doesn't say, like Captain Ahab said at the end of Moby Dick, it just quotes it. Yeah. It doesn't say, you know, Khan in the story of Genesis is a lot like if we want to think of him in biblical terms, he's a lot like Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, there's Project Genesis, which is inspired by the Bible, but is not a religious thing at all. It is both subtle and unsubtle in the way it connects these themes. And I think that's a testament to just the overall quality of this piece of artwork. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, an, an amazing point that you make there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, I said that I would return to this Seven Ages of Man speech, and I think it's another important uh, thing to focus on in both Shakespeare and Moby Dick as it relates to themes uh, throughout the Wrath of Khan. And those themes are age, uh, aging, growth, death, and rebirth. Uh, so the Seven Ages of Man speech 
Everybody knows it. It's the one that starts all the world's a stage. It's a lengthy speech, so I won't read the entire thing here, but essentially it, it takes you through uh, every stage of being a person, uh, every age of your life. So you start as an infant mewling and puking in your mother's arms and so on and so forth. And it ends with, quote, last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything, end quote. There is a very similar passage in Moby Dick that I think is also worth reading here, uh, where Ahab says, quote, there is no steady, unretracing progress in this life. We do not advance through fixed gradations and at the last one pause, through infancy's unconscious spell, boyhood's thoughtless faith, Adolescence's doubt, the common doom, then skepticism, then disbelief, resting at last in manhood's pondering repose of if. But once gone through, we trace the round again, and our infants, boys and men, and ifs eternally. Where lies the final harbor, whence we unmoor no more? End quote. I had to read that because he says the final harbor, which the final frontier, like how do you not make that uh, combination there? But he's talking about death. And both of these speeches are talking about how we start our lives as babies and we kind of end our lives as babies too. And that might remind you of the Sphinx's riddle in Oedipus. Uh, what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening? Man who starts out as a baby and ends up in this second childhood. And there's a sort of sadness to that, right? A sadness that we mature and that we then deteriorate. We age, right? To a degree, knowing that our time on uh, being alive is fleeting and temporary, and knowing that at any point in time our life could, could expunge, and that most of us probably won't have a noble sacrifice like Spock to save a starship, most of us will probably grow old and die, um, that there can be a certain sense of sadness and certainly a sense of existential dread. And I would say Kirk is going through this in this movie. He doesn't want to celebrate his birthday. He has lost some of his eyesight. He's collecting historical relics of great generals and uh, naval commanders of the past of humanity in different eras. He's sipping Romulan ale, and his best one of his best friends, Bones, says... Why are we treating your birthday like a funeral? Why are we treating your celebration like mournful death? He asked Kirk. And in the end, we see a very different take on that. And I think this, to me, kind of cuts to the core of both the sort of mythological, pseudo-philosophical core of this movie, and which I think can be most personified through Project Genesis. Yeah. And the idea of the creation of life. So we have James T. Kirk, protagonist, who has actually created a life in David, but has denied his role as being a father and has walked away from it because he's unable to make sacrifices for David's good. He rather would just, uh, you know, follow his own desires and be a, a starship captain. Um, it's no telling that David is the name like David and Goliath from yeah. the Bible. I don't think that's an accident. And what does Dr. Marcus create? But she creates the ability for humans to become God itself. in Not in literal terms, because it's, it's non-magical in nature. It's non-transcendental uh, in nature. Yeah, it's terraforming. It's, it's technology. It's fundamentally science-based. But it's the ability to take death and recreate it into life, to take lifelessness and make new life out of it. And because they're scientists, their concern is to make sure they can't go to a place with life because otherwise they are now destroying that, that life's ability to grow. However, this act of creation is inherently destructive, no matter how you look at it. And the act of creation and destruction in conversation with each other echoes throughout history and throughout human, in particular, human mythology, from whether it is the um, Titans needing to be overthrown by the Olympians who then need to give birth to humans, and that from the gift of fire causing great 
like torment and pain in Prometheus, having given humanity the ability to cook their food and be warm in winter to be punished. The idea that to create is also to destroy is embedded in our cultural subconsciousness. And this happens literally in Genesis, which creates and destroys at the same time. It gives humans or the Federation, I should say, because it's, it's a pan human um, Federation the ability to destroy all life on a planet and remake it in a new image. It is horribly destructive and horribly creative and beautifully creative, pardon me, all at the same time. What is one of the core reasons that Khan wants vengeance against Kirk? The death of his wife. He loses the ability to create life. Where does he live? On a dead planet mm. without life. Kirk took the ability for Khan to be a life giver away from him. Hence, now that he can't create life, he has nothing else to live for but the vengeance. Otherwise, he would just succumb to the despair and death. Vengeance becomes the thing that defines him. So we have this mythological, philosophical, symbolic creation of death and life happening at the same time. And there is a human historical example of this that I think Genesis is very aware of. And that is the creation of the atom bomb. Come, came from scientists designed to split an atom in the hopes to create fusion technology to solve energy issues, is then turned into the most powerful weapon in the history of humanity. One that one unleashed can kill thousands and thousands of people within the blink of an eye. It is creation and destruction happening simultaneously. We've created the technology to split the atom and we use that to then destroy. Well, we have created the ability to re-terraform dead planets, but we can also use that to destroy. And so Khan, robbed of the ability to create life, robbed of a family, a planet, a wife, a son or a daughter to call his own. What does he want? He wants to hoard the power of Genesis himself so he can use it not for its life-affirming purposes, but solely for its destructive purposes. And when he sets Genesis off, he has no concern of what planet may or may not come out of its, um, its bomb being ignited, even though it's not a bomb. All he cares about is using it to destroy Kirk. And it is this balance. And then what then happens? It creates life and ends up breathing a youthful air into a war-torn Kirk who should be mourning the loss of his best friend. What does it do? It brings David. He walks into the office of his own Goliath, his absentee, warmongering father, and he says, I was wrong about you. It heals their wound. So that act of creation actively heals and creates rejuvenating life. It creates a father and a son dynamic when previously they were strangers, maybe even enemies you know, up until this point, and now makes them father and son. And the last words are Kirk feels young. So that act of, dest of destruction completely backfires and rejuvenates Kirk um, for more stories to come. Yeah, uh, extremely well said. And that's where I think that Shakespeare quote is so important. That's where I think thinking about the seven ages of man in a different way is super important because it's not just mourning, coming to the end of your life and having to return to childhood and not having as much control over your body as you once had, not feeling as youthful as you once did. Instead, looking at that as the uh, kind of creative freedom that it allows you, as how liberating it is to grow old, uh, how liberating it is to see a new generation coming in under you to take up the mantle and allow you a little bit of rest. Uh, Kirk is feeling young as he is looking out on the planet that is now the uh, mausoleum of his dead friend. So it is absolutely identifying the, uh, the incredible um, ties that creation and destruction have to each other and how they liberate each other. I think another thing that's fascinating about Genesis uh, is just how attitudes toward it are portrayed within The Wrath of Khan. Uh, because easily, if you had planted this piece of technology into a Black Mirror episode or really any other you know, science fiction universe, you'd have a very different movie. 
that would not be about the, um, you know, the war between these two characters, but instead it would be about the moral implications of having this piece of technology be accessible. Uh, there is a little bit of reservation that is voiced by Bones McCoy, who when he first hears uh, what Genesis is and what Genesis can do, he reflects on the fact that, oh, well, the Earth was created in six days, but now we can do it in six minutes. Very much without saying the word God, saying uh, humanity is getting dangerously close to playing God. But that's really the only real reservation that is ever voiced against it. For the most part, uh, the, the ability of Genesis to create a new Eden uh, is looked on with awe and wonder and people look at Carol Marcus, the lead scientist on this, as this just incredible scientist and are, uh, are in, in absolute awe of what she's able to create just through the sort of boundless potential of the human spirit. They're not looking at her and saying, how dare you overstep your bounds? How dare you show such hubris as to play God? Uh, but wow, how amazing is it that you were able to come up with such an incredible piece of technology. And, you know, I think there is so much space for those stories about overstepping, for stories about hubris. Uh, obviously, there is an entire, like, multi-millennia-long uh, tradition of plays and stories about that kind of thing. But it is kind of cool to see this... Um, this optimistic view of technology and how humans can better their universe. And do you know what I felt so refreshed by this movie? If this movie were to be made today, they would put Genesis on Earth, Khan would be killed in a battle, and the last 15 minutes would be figuring out how to make sure Genesis doesn't destroy Earth in this great, the Earth or another planet is about to be destroyed race against time it would probably form a spire in the sky or sky a beam, beam yeah you know and it'd be like genesis is going to start remaking the matrix of the planet and we've got to do something now that we've defeated khan what i was so refreshed was genesis is out there in the no man land of space because these characters realize its destructive potential they would never bring it close to a place where if it accidentally went off, it would mean death of an entire planet. And Genesis isn't even activated until the very end, and the race isn't to save a planet, it's just to get the F out of there before this nebula turns into a planet. The stakes are in some ways small, uh, because they're about individuals, but they're high because they're about individuals, because every single individual's life has extremely high value. And... I am just refreshed in how it utilized this godlike power and this godlike power and both its destructive and creative ways and how it balanced it. And there's tremendous respect to the science. I think the character's reaction to the science shows that this one of the things that makes it so optimistic inherently, Star Trek, this is broader brush, is that science really, it says science can fix our problems. If we think of things with an air of human morality, with some cold Vulcan yeah. uh, rationality, and we deconstruct all of these like intellectual silos we live in now that pit us against each other, we could all live in peace and harmony, and we could have a federation that's multiplanetary within a galaxy. It's saying that, yes, these things can be solved. These problems of race, gender, capitalism, greed, um, you know, ecological disasters. These are solvable problems, and here's what it looks like once we solve them. And science is the gateway to getting us from, from where we are now to there. And that is so fundamentally optimistic that when the Federation has the ability to literally become God, they call it Genesis. It's not subtle, right? To literally become gods... One person is a little uncomfortable, but the rest are like, well, yeah, we'll use this power responsibly, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's just kind of cool. Um, should we talk about Spock a little bit, just because this is, uh, this is a great movie for so many reasons, and it's remembered for so many reasons, iconic for so many reasons, but it's also the movie where Spock dies. And, uh, you know, surprisingly, I think, 
by no one's estimation at the beginning of the Star Trek phenomenon, did they think that Spock would become the character who would alight people's hearts more than anyone else in the Star Trek franchise. Uh, you know, he's a character who came to epitomize the entire franchise to a point where Leonard Nimoy had to write a book about how he wasn't Spock so that he would stop getting typecast and would have a career outside of it. Um, I, yeah, I'd just love to spend a little bit of time with the character. Well, I'll say this. The Vulcans figured out the pandemic-free greeting. Unlike the humans with their germ handshake, the live long and prosper is certainly the cleaner, more logical way to greet people. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, what can we say about Spock? Everything. He's amazing. He is one of the greatest um, pop culture characters. He is so iconic and so amazing. The idea of a being of pure logic allows for so many different interesting, both narrative things within the story when the logic like bumps up right against the passion and the emotion and the feeling where logic by itself can seem cruel and heartless. I mean, McCoy calls him a green blooded hobgoblin. How many times? Because he is so purely logical. And in yet in this movie, we see the, a few things I'd say the democratization of logic in the philosophy of the needs of the many outweigh the yeah. needs of the few or the one in that he is saying not in a utilitarian way, which is what I originally thought, but I meditated this on a lot. So utilitarian says that the, you need to maximize the greatest amount of happiness and minimize the greatest amount of pain in order for something to be moral. Well, Spock says it's the needs of the many, not the happiness yeah. of the many. So into me, it's much more democratic. What do most people need that is more important right now than what the few people need? They outweigh each other. You can logically look at human or Vulcan or Federation need and say, all right, if most people are starving to death, but a few people, actually, let me give a better example. If most people are dying of a disease, but a few people feel like their freedoms are being impinged on by wearing a mask, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few if we're actually a democratic society, right? That's a great example. So the needs of the many to stop the pandemic that's killing people, they outweigh the needs of the few people who say this infringes on my individual liberties. And the people that say it infringes on their liberties are correct. It does because you're not at liberty to not wear a mask, but your needs are being outweighed by the many. Spock uses this logic in one of the most compassionate emotional scenes from a character who apparently doesn't feel emotions, in which he recognizes that the only way to save the Enterprise is for one person to die. And to him, he's like, well... I'm the only one that realizes it. I don't fear death. You know, you said, doesn't it make you sad, the cycle of life, birth, and death? To a Vulcan, the answer is no, I don't feel sadness. This is how things are. This is logical. And to him, it's logical. And it is one of the most gut-wrenching scenes of all sci-fi cin cinema, if not all cinema out there. Absolutely. Um, and isn't it such a, a profound end uh, and heart-wrenching thing to watch right now, to watch two friends uh, who love each other deeply and have loved each other for a long time separated in one of their final moments by a sheet of glass and not being able to reach out and touch each other. Uh, there's a special kind of poignance to that moment right now um, because it looks like so many people who had to stand outside the windows of their grandmothers in nursing homes and put their hands upon the glass. So I'm getting a little emotional right now. Um, but as Kirk said, of all the souls he encountered in all of his travels, Spock's was the most human. Uh, so there's this incredible uh, pathos that is evoked uh, in Spock's final moments and that really suffuses all of the moments of his character throughout this movie and throughout the Star Trek franchise that, yes, he is a predominantly logical character, but he is also Kirk's friend. He is also someone who does understand love who does understand compassion and who does laugh and smile and have fun sometimes. Uh, so 
although this movie ends with his death, we know it's not the end for his character, and we know that the search for Spock will continue. Um, I don't know if we'll return to Star Trek anytime soon um, or at all, but if you want to hear more of us talking about Star Trek, I would love to finally watch the whale movie, for one. Um, you haven't seen it? No. Ravicon is the only Star Trek movie I've seen, other than the J.J. Abrams ones. I watched the original series and Wrath of Khan and none of the other movies. Uh, so I have a lot of work to do, obviously. Um, but this has been a really fun conversation about big and massive themes uh, about Shakespeare and about mythology and about uh, the atom bomb and about the pandemic. So who knew that we were going to open up all of these doors? But that's what we do. We go where no man has gone before. Yeah, we here at The Midnight Myth are now and always shall be your friends. And until next time, be kind. Live long and prosper.